Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Yesler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Marshall Poe about the founding of New Books Network. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Thank you very much for having me, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad you're here. You are someone I have wanted to interview since we first started our channel with you. Um, But before we dive into how and why you founded New Books Network, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I was uh, born in Alabama (laughs) on a military base. My dad was in the army and then we moved to Kansas and I grew up in Kansas and then I played basketball for a long time. And I wanted to be Michael Jordan, but that didn't work out uh, because I lacked the skill and athleticism (laughs) of Michael Jordan. And then I went to college in Iowa at a little college in Iowa, Grinnell College. And that's really where I became interested in ideas. Uh, I had a mentor there. His name's Dan Kaiser. I'm still in touch with him. And he was a Russian historian. And I figured I wanted to become a Russian historian too. So that's what I did. And I went to grad school and then I became a professor. And then after a while of being a professor, um, I left academia and I worked for the Atlantic magazine for six years. And then uh, after working for the Atlantic, I went back to academia and then I was a professor at the University of Iowa for a few years. And then uh, in a fit of absent-mindedness, I started a podcast called New Books in History, because I'd always been very interested in the disconnect between what experts know, and particularly academics, and what the public knows. And I'd constantly been trying to figure out a better mechanism uh, to get these ideas out into the public. But that's the second part of the story. I want to circle back to a couple of things. When you were first thinking about going to college, did you have one in mind? And did you think, oh, it'll probably be history. And then when you met someone who did Russian history, you thought, oh, Russian history? Or how did did those ducks line up in a row? Uh, I didn't really think much about going to college at all. Um, I knew someone that had gone to Grinnell. And that's the only reason I knew about it. And so uh, I applied and miraculously got accepted. And this person was very impressive, the person that I knew that went there. And so I decided to go there. Grinnell was very generous with me in the sense that I couldn't have afforded it, uh, but they um, gave me a very generous financial aid package uh, for which I am eternally grateful. And it, it was really at that point that I discovered that I wasn't a particularly bad student. In fact, I was kind of a good student when I put my mind to it. I think this is true of a lot of people. I was a indifferent high school student. Um, And then it was really the case of meeting this one man, Dan Kaiser. It it was really him. And uh, he was just a very impressive person, as I like to say in kind of a joking way, he was the first sober adult male I had ever met and spent any time with. <laughs> that tells you a little about my family. Uh, and he was just an impressive guy. And I, I he encouraged me in many ways. And uh, he told me that I could do this if I wanted to do it. And so I set my mind to it. 
and uh, I had a great experience at Grinnell. I, th I think it's a wonderful place. These liberal arts colleges in general, I, I'm a big fan of them for a certain kind of student, not for all students, but for someone like me, uh, I think it was perfect and I loved my time there. And so it was really under um, his mentorship that I decided to go on to graduate school. History is such a reading intensive endeavor. When you were younger, did you love to read? How did you feel about the workload as far as no, reading? No, I hated to read. And in fact, an interesting part of my biography is that I'm dyslexic. I didn't know this because I'm old. I just turned 60. And at the time, I don't believe this was widely diagnosed, but I didn't learn to read until I was like in third grade. And there was all kinds of... My mother, who was an English teacher, a junior high school teacher, she was very worried about this. And uh, there was talk about holding me back and things like this, because it was very hard for me just to read. Uh, and so I learned to listen very carefully. And, and I didn't read. I, I, I think I, I can tell you the first book that I ever read, and it was All's Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Remark when I was a senior in high school. I'd never read a book before then. <laughs> Mostly what I did was play sports. I played all the sports because that was big in Kansas and I was pretty good at them. Not very good, but I spent most of my time playing sports. And like a lot of high school students at that time, I had jobs. And so uh, high school was just one part of my my life. I had a job and I had practice and these other things. And it, it was hardly the first thing in my mind to, to read a book. I don't, I was not interested in books. <laughs> So little you would be very surprised that big you has an entire network devoted to books yes. and talking about books and passion about books and presses coming on and explaining how a book is made and yeah. all of that. Yes, yeah, so this is an irony that occurs to me from time to time that my uh, life project has really been bound up in books and the books people write. Um, so yeah, but it, it, uh, I feel, I feel very lucky. I think anybody in my position has to, first of all, say that a lot of luck was involved and, uh, I was certainly extremely fortunate to meet the right people, uh, who helped me along the way, um, in times of difficulty and, and other times when I needed to do things that I, I wasn't particularly inclined to do. So that was a big part of it. It's amazing that you remember the exact book that kind of I do. started you with reading because it's so relevant for right now. I've been thinking about that as I watch the news that I don't know if they still assign All Quiet on the Western Front in high school, but I imagine that's one that will be assigned to more. Um, I remember having it in high school and I remember it being one of the books that actually really emotionally hit me really hard. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, I didn't know this at the time I read it, it, it was a very, uh, I mean, it's an anti-war novel. And my um, my father, as I said, was in the army. And then my uncle fought in Vietnam. And so these things were kind of on my mind. And uh, it did have a great emotional impact on me. At the time, I remember sitting in class and reading it when I was supposed to be doing other things. I would hold it in my lap and I would read it. You know how students do, they not paying attention. And I was reading this book because it was just so amazing to me. That, that someone had gone through this horrendous experience and, and written so eloquently about it. So did your early experience in struggling to read and being a late reader, did some of that inform why you wanted to do book-based podcasts? Because they make books so accessible, not just for people with dyslexia, but with a host of reasons why sitting down and reading a book isn't a good match for them. Yeah, th this is precisely right. Uh, I, I had always had difficulty reading um, I, I still, to this day, I won't say I have difficulty reading, but it's not 
the first thing that I do. I listen to a lot of audio books. I love Audible. I have two Audible accounts <laughs> because I run out of the credits that they give you. And so, I, I, yeah, I was, I was very concerned about this. And one of the reasons that I left academia the first time was because I was interested in finding a better way to communicate these ideas to a broad public. And really what I learned at the Atlantic, there are wonderful people um, that work there and they do really important work, I would say. Uh, it's, it's work that um, I, I think more people should support by subscribing because that's how they pay the bills. Um, but what I learned there essentially was that print was the wrong medium to get these ideas out to people. And, and, and the reason for that, uh, at least my opinion about the reason for that, is precisely that for most people, reading is hard. Uh, first of all, it takes a long time to learn how to do it. Not everybody successfully does it. I, I can't cite the statistics, but some people never really learn to read with any great proficiency. It takes up all of your attention. You can't do anything else and read. So it's this kind of immersive mental experience that is also costly in a way because it requires so much brain power to do it. Listening, on the other hand, is very easy. We're born with listening um, organs. They're called ears. Uh, it, it's easy to learn how to listen. Language acquisition through speaking is, is dead simple for most kids, I guess I would say, um, able kids. And it's something that we find pleasurable. Just hearing the human voice is something that people like. They like to hear people talk. And, and it has this added advantage. You can do something else while you're doing it. It doesn't take all of your attention. You can do the dishes or sweep the floor or you know chase your kids around, or I don't, I don't know what you're doing while you're doing it, but it has this added advantage of, of not taking up all of your attention. And so it becomes very convenient in our busy, busy lives to, to do this thing that we're really born and evolved to do. And, and hearing an author talk about a book is very gratifying for the author because no one has probably ever asked them to talk about their book on medieval waterworks because there's about 20 people in the world that know everything about medieval waterworks and are interesting. Um, and, and so they're, they're usually very eloquent people. They wrote a book and they, they, it's fun to listen to them talk about what they know. And, and it's also gratifying, obviously, for the listeners because they get to learn about medieval waterworks or whatever it is. Uh, and it's fun for the interviewer, at least I think it's fun because you get to hear this person, an expert, somebody's been 10 years of their life or something on medieval waterworks, <laughs> talk about something that they know with, with um, you know, great depth. So it, everybody wins, I think, with, with the podcasts. One of the other things that strikes me as I'm listening to you is often we start out with a really positive association with books. There's a librarian or a grandparent or somebody who sits down and reads a book that they particularly love and they read it out loud to you. And you have this communal experience of being involved in the story. And then at some magic age, they say, oh, you can read it yourself. And maybe you can, or maybe you can't, but that connection, that idea that stories are shared and there's something that we all do together gets broken as soon as there's this idea that reading becomes this independent, silent thing that you go off and do on your own. And I think one of the things I love about some of the feedback I've gotten about the podcast is people have listening parties or they play a, a section of it for their class. Um, 
or they, they listen to it while they're driving the car and everybody in the car is listening. And it brings us back into that shared idea that I think is where story comes from. We want to share, not just with one other person, but to create community around story. Yeah, I, th- I think this is exactly right. I mean, I actually wrote a book on the history of communications. And one of the kind of takeaways was that uh, we aren't really in control of speaking. We think that we are, but we're not. We will just talk. We just talk and and we can't help ourselves to talk. I mean, the the great example of this is talking to yourself. We'll talk to ourselves and this is a desire to be heard. And then on the flip side, there's the desire to listen and to engage. And, And this is really the kind of fun part of education as Plato and Socrates knew is that dialogic element that you actually get to engage another live person. Reading is a very solitary thing. It's kind of lonely, uh, which is why people have book clubs and things, because it's it's really something you do yourself. And and that's it, it's a really I, I I I'm hesitant to use this word, but it's kind of unnatural just reading a book by yourself. It's not we're not designed for it. it's a good way to learn, I suppose, for people that read well. But I think speaking to people about things is a better way to learn. For a while in grad school, I worked uh, at a library on an island. And I loved working on the circulation desk because um, when people would return their books, they were pretty eager to tell you what they thought about it. And it was much more interesting for them to do that if you had also read the book. Mm-hmm. And as someone who worked the circulation desk, I kind of got first dibs on all the new books that arrived on the island. So I would you know, take huge tote bags full of books home and devour them. I would be really interested to hear what patrons had to say. Obviously, for privacy reasons, you can't start quizzing them about what they read or say loudly like, oh, I see you have a book on, I don't know, <laughs> family problems or whatever. Um, but if people start sharing, there's a whole level of new life for the fact that they read and that they read that book. Because yes, they went off and read it by themselves and they have all this information in their head. But now they're looking for community who either wants that information or wants to talk about their take on that same information. Yeah, I think that uh, much of the best part of the internet is given over to this kind of thing. Uh, I, I don't use Facebook very much, but I'm part of a group. Uh, we don't talk about books, we talk about music. But really, it's we just talk about music. I mean, it, it, the entire, it's a Facebook group. And it's it's I look at it every day because I can't wait to hear what these people have to say about the music that they've listened to. And, and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's deep and sometimes it's serious, but it is, it is communal. We're all exchanging these ideas about music and uh, I, I find it very rewarding. So when you started your podcast, were you an avid listener podcast? Cause I will out myself when I got this podcast, um, my dad was still alive at the time and I told him and he said, what's a podcast? And I said, I'm still figuring that out. Like I was not an avid uh, podcast listener. And now, now that I'm immersed in it, I really appreciate what this unique genre does for information delivery. But where were you, uh, back when you started? Well, this was 2007 and podcasts were very new. And I only learned about podcasts when I was working at the Atlantic and uh, they sent me to South by Southwest, I remember. And there were people talking about podcasting. This must've been in about 2005. And I didn't know anything about them and had never listened to one, to be honest with you. Um, And what happened was somebody uh, asked to interview me about a 
an article that I had written in the Atlantic. And I said, okay, I'll, that's fine. And I assumed that it was going to be uh, transcribed and printed. And then at the end of the interview, he said it was going to be released as a podcast. I remember this day very well. His name was Andrew Keen, actually. And I said, hey, that's kind of cool. You can release these as um, audio. And it was really at that moment that I thought, I wonder what would happen if I interview academics about their books, if anybody would listen. Uh, so no, I was not a big podcast listener at the time. I, I, I was more interested in using the medium to go places where traditional media could not go because the costs are so low for podcasting. He didn't tell you till the end. I'm just listening to that thinking I would freak out if I found out at the end that the audio was being used. I would want to know up front. Yeah, no, I don't believe he, I don't believe he did. Uh, he said it was going to be recorded. I remember that, but I thought it was for the purposes of transcription and printing. But he said at the end, no, I'm going to release it on my podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? And he said, you know, this is what it is. And I said, uh, I'm going to have to look into that. So take us back to that. You start you start with your one channel of New Books Network, you've left academia, and now you're inviting academics to come on and talk to you. What was the reception and what were fellow academics saying? Were they like me saying, well, what's a podcast? Well, to, get, to give credit where credit's due, with that, when I started the New Books Network, well, when I started New Books in History, I was at the University of Iowa and they were very helpful. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, it was an experiment in public education. That's really all it was. And I had done other things like this, like I had made videos and things like this in an attempt to get people to pay more attention to what academics and experts know. Uh, The reception was good because what I discovered was, uh, and I, I sort of knew this as an author myself, that all authors want to be interviewed. They want to talk about, uh, what they've done. And, and this is perfectly natural and good. So getting people to talk was, was not difficult, but there were some technical hurdles because at that time, for example, we didn't have Zoom or Zencast or any of the other tools we have now. So I would use Skype out to call people on their cell phones. That's how we recorded the first interviews. For years, we did it that way. And sometimes they would have Skype themselves, but even then a lot of people didn't use Skype. So I would record these, and even the audio was not particularly good, but we've always been a kind of content forward platform. We, we, we are concerned with audio quality, but really it's people listen to the New Books Network for the content because it's a kind of content that you can't get anyplace else. If you're uh, interested in Sufis in Pakistan, where else are you gonna go? I mean, we're pretty much it. And so the reception was, was pretty good. It was very slow. I did one interview a week for a couple of years. And, and what I discovered was people actually did listen. And I got a lot of listener feedback that was positive and they appreciated the fact that we were going places that the traditional media would never go because it's just cost prohibitive for, you know, CNN or the BBC or NPR to talk about a book about medieval waterworks. You're not going to get a big enough audience to support the entire endeavor. So uh, yeah, it, it was good. And then, and then, as you say, I started, I contacted a few other academics that I knew and said, hey, would you like to have a podcast? And after I explained what a podcast was, uh, some of them said yes, most of them said no. And the uh, kind of quid pro quo on the New Books Network evolved really on the fly. And the quid pro quo, which exists to this day, is the host pick the books and record the interviews and I do everything else. So that means audio editing, 
and platforming on the website and distribution through RSS feeds on a podcast host. At this time, I was self-hosting, actually, because podcast hosts didn't exist. So I, I had a server and, you know, all these other things that are now seem like in the age of the dinosaurs. Uh, but th- this proved very attractive to a lot of academics, that, that a philosopher could talk to other philosophers about philosophy books for an hour and just send me the audio files. And suddenly they had a publication just like that and an audience. And that was really the, the kind of kicker is that thousands of people were listening to someone talk about what by the lights of the traditional media is a pretty obscure book. And so every, again, everybody wins. The publisher wins, the author wins, the host wins, I win, the the public wins. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, it, it was very rewarding to get people to, to build the network in that way. When I do my episodes, I try to think about what I wished I had known when I was an undergrad or a grad student, because the content that you get from these podcasts is different than the book on tape. You know, that's reading aloud the entire book. And it's it's different than the class discussion that your professor might host. This is the author really going deep on what drove them to write it and what to them are some of the most resonant parts of the book. And that piece of understanding, I struggled on my own in grad school, often because a lot of the classes I was assigned that are part of the canon weren't aligned with what my passions were as a historian. You have to learn that stuff. You have to take those classes. But I often called them dead white men's greatest hits because as a female scholar interested in minoritized voices, they they weren't speaking to me. um, And it felt like they left a lot of things out. So how did I find an in for something that wasn't naturally interesting to me or that felt really exclusionary. And getting to hear authors talk about why they're passionate can make you interested in being open-minded about something that you maybe would just walk right by in the bookstore or the library and say, no, that's not my area. Yes, that's precisely right. And, and you know, one of the things we're concerned about here is coverage. So that there are, and, and I don't think most people who aren't in academia know this, there are tens of thousands of scholars writing these books. I think something like 15,000 monographs are published every year just by university presses. It's a huge ocean of things to know. Do you really want to go to the expense of finding the right book and buying the right book and reading that book to find out that you're not interested in it? Not really. So what we offer is the ability to kind of taste what it is that the person is talking about. It, it won't take up too much of your time or too much of your attention. It's free. And if you might be interested in medieval waterworks, well, you listen to this person talk about medieval waterworks for 45 minutes, and maybe you are. And then if you want to go deep, really deep, then you can buy the book because there's always a book behind the podcast. And it helps for scholars in figuring out footnotes. Often we need to get our hands on something quickly that we are really not familiar with, and we don't have 12 hours to do a super deep dive into that. So if we've heard the podcast and we know the book, we can more quickly access in that book the page that we need to cite, the material that we need to cite, because we feel confident that this is a very good source. Yeah, I mean, we we are a, a public education project first and foremost, but you know, we are also part of the scholarly communications firmament. And, and I know a lot of people 
especially grad students, use the podcast for the purposes of familiarizing themselves with books without actually reading them. Maybe they'll go on to read them. But that that's a useful function for people kind of in the profession. I, I think for most listeners, though, who are commuters or they're sweeping their floor or whatever, they're just interested because it's something you can't get someplace else. And you're going to get something new out of it because you don't know anything about Sufis in Pakistan. And you might because you heard about Sufis in Pakistan. What's a Sufi? Where's Pakistan? <laughs> and, and then you can spend 45 minutes learning about it. That's one of the things I like about uh, New Books Network is we're kind of redefining what we're calling academia and academics. It's not just the professors in the classrooms. It's not just the students who are there listening, but it's people who are interested in furthering their knowledge base. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that when I was starting the New Books Network, I had firmly in mind was Wikipedia, which I, which I think is a wonderful thing. I really I really do think it's miraculous. Um, and the people that curate Wikipedia pages are largely, mostly, I think, experts who know a lot about them. I used to edit Wikipedia pages on Russian history because I knew a lot about it. Um, and they're a good first stop if you want to learn something. Go to Wikipedia you type it in. Usually it's one of the first returns on Google. And if you're interested in, you know, tractor production in the United States, then you probably can find an article about the history of tractors. And you read a little bit of it and then maybe some footnotes and that might be a bibliography at the end of the article. Um, and, and you just can kind of be sure that it's almost all there. And, and this is something that we're tending toward on the New Books Network kind of unexpectedly is to become, um, if the right word is capacious or universal in that way, is that, you know, we hope that when people come to the New Books Network website, we have 14,000 interviews, we publish 75 new ones every week, uh, that they'll find what they want there. Just type in the search bar what you're interested in, a keyword, and you'll probably find something someone talking about what you're interested in. And th this has always been a kind of goal of mine. And it's one of the reasons we devote so much resources to the website versus the podcast themselves, because the most of the books we do are evergreen, as they say in the industry. That is a book about the French Revolution is a book about the French Revolution. The French Revolution is always going to be important. And uh, at least I hope it is. And, and if you're interested in the French Revolution, you can go type French Revolution in the search bar on the New Books Network website. And, and you can understand that it's really kind of like a library because there's so much stuff there. And you'll find four or five interviews on the French Revolution. And if you want to listen to them to kind of learn a little bit about the French Revolution, well, that's great. And then, of course, as I said, you can always go deeper because there are books behind the the interviews. So if you want to go there, you can. Um, and, and, you know, I, I often think, well, what's the new books that we're going to look like in 100 years if it survives 100 years? And I think it is going to be hundreds of thousands of interviews about books and everything is going to be there. At least that's what I hope. I won't be around to see it, but that's my hope. So take us back to when you started. What were your original hopes and visions and where are we now in meeting those hopes and visions? Well, originally it was just really an experiment in public education and that's all it was. I was a professor at the time and I had a salary and so I was doing the work of the people of Iowa and very happy to do it. I like Iowa a lot, it was a great school and my colleagues were very supportive and they're wonderful people. Um, and I really just wanted to see if people would listen. I wasn't thinking about making it into a business or anything like that. Uh, but it did occur to me 
at a certain point that it could be made into a kind of academic institution or uh, so, so I started to think about how that might happen. And then in 2012, I made the big leap and I quit my job as a professor and decided to devote full time to it. Now that this was probably not the wisest thing to do because at that time there was no revenue. It, I was supporting it all. Uh, now it's not terribly expensive, hosting costs and a my time and a bunch of other stuff. But then as the network grew over the next about 10 years, um, there were some hard times when I was wondering whether I could continue to do it because the number of interviews we were publishing, the number of hosts we had, what was going up pretty rapidly. So there were a lot of 12 hour days. I mean, there continue to be a lot of 12 hour days. Uh, so at some point I realized that in order to make it sustainable as a kind of public service, I had to figure out a way to get revenue. I mean, it, it had to pay for itself um, because I was working day jobs at the time. I went from being a tenured professor to an adjunct, which was an interesting experience. Um, at the University of Massachusetts. And so I started to think hard about finding ways to make it pay for itself. And it, that was about an eight year period in which I experimented with various, what we would call business models um, to try to find a way to get the revenue that was necessary to continue doing it. And your background is in Russian history. And when you started doing Russian history, was there a lot of interest? It occurs to me that Right now, your work is probably more popular than it was when you were a professor. <laughs> I, I didn't really, I, I remember it's an interesting sort of personal anecdote. When I applied to graduate school, I, I did it quite naively. And I, I remember writing my uh, essay and I said I wanted to become a historian. I didn't specify what kind. I just wanted to become a historian. And that's kind of the still way I think about myself. I'm a historian. I studied the past. And so Russia didn't hold any special place in the early New Books Network. We did have a Russian and Eurasian Studies channel. I had edited a journal. I'd founded and edited a journal, in fact, in Russian studies. And, and so I knew people there. Um, and it was one of the first channels. But there wasn't any special focus on Russia. And there isn't today. Uh, you know, again, our goal is to do everything um, without prejudice. So we launch new channels all the time. Um, somebody just contacted me about a channel on nomadic studies. Like I didn't even know that existed, <laughs> but I'm happy to do it if I can find people to do the interviews. I know in one of our work meetings, you said we were banned in one country. Is New Books Network banned in more than one country? Uh, as I like to say, and I believe this is true, we reach every country on earth except North Korea, and we're working on North Korea. I mean, I know we reach people in every country on earth. I mean, we currently reach about a million people a month, and those people download three or four million episodes a month. Um, and they're really all over the world. The majority of our audience is in the English speaking world, but hardly exclusively. You know, we're big in Japan, as they say. And, and so there are people everywhere. And, you know, we're also very interested in what is called in the business localization. So we just launched a year ago the NBN in Spanish, NBN in Espanol. Uh, I don't speak Spanish, uh, but I was lucky enough to find a couple of people that were. Um, willing to take on the burden of running it. And so that's a going concern too. So you can 
both hear books on NBN in English and NBN in Spanish. And, you know, hopefully, I don't, I don't know if this will ever happen, but we would expand to other languages on the model of Wikipedia, which is in lots of languages. You mentioned a few minutes ago about academic presses and how many monographs they publish a year. What is your relationship with academic presses? And I would imagine they're pretty excited about the space that you've created. Yeah, they're very supportive. Uh, there are a couple of ways to look at it. The, the, the best way is, is that we're really all on the same team and that is team education. Um, they do terrific work getting the ideas that academics have out into the public sphere. And we couldn't do what we do without them. So our relationship is completely aligned in that way. And they are very supportive of what we do. You know, and the other thing is that uh, from a business perspective this time, uh, we've kind of created a new sales channel for them. Because these books, unless they appear in the New York Review of Books or someplace, the, the public is not going to know about them. Uh, so. I like to think, I don't have any good evidence of this, that we've increased the number of books that they sell. And I, I'm glad of that because it helps the authors, it helps the presses. University presses are almost universally underfunded. And anything we can do to help them do what they do, we will do. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that, that we have great relations with them and we're very happy to be working with them. I had written a few questions before we started. And I feel like I know the answer after talking to you for a bit, but would you ever want to go back to being a professor? No, I don't think so. No, I, 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 I guess I reached a certain point in my academic career as a Russian historian when I felt I, I, I knew enough about Russia. And I had done it for 25 years and, and it, it wasn't as interesting to me as it had been. Uh, uh, and I don't know if that's typical or not. I admire people that can write four monographs on Russia or whatever. Uh, I didn't feel like I could do that. And I wanted to do something different. And I recognize this problem because it's a problem we talk about a lot in academia. And that's, I call it the dissemination problem, is that we produce all of these books and they don't ever seem to make it into the public sphere. And uh, th this was always of concern to me. It's something that people at the Atlantic think about a lot too. And I, I always had this in the back of my mind is I wondered if there was a way to help ameliorate this, this difficulty or to, to connect this disconnect. And so I, I feel very lucky that I was, I mean, I just feel lucky that I'm able to do this work. I mean, it's just such a blessing to be able to do it at all. I, I can't, I can't imagine going back to being a professor right now, at least in Russian history. It's one of the things that I like about the podcast as well is people who reach out to me and say, you know, I haven't been a student for X number of years, but I listen to your episodes and it, it makes me happy, not just that they're listening to my episodes. I'm happy for the guests who've come on. Cause I'm excited about every single guest I interview. I wish I could do way more interviews than I have time for, because I'm always so interested to learn from everyone who comes on to talk to me. But back when I was thinking about grad school, it was on my mind about how do we share knowledge? And a lot of my jobs while I was in grad school, I worked at two different museums. One, one of my jobs was in museum ed and I designed the programs and small underfunded museums, you design it and they go, great, you're gonna run it too and go source the supplies and you know, here's your budget and it doesn't exist and good luck with that. You know, and, <laughs> um, and do your own advertising and yeah. 
and the programs filled and they kept filling. And it was wonderful because when you do museum ed programs, you often end up with the whole family or, or multiple generations coming because you can't really just drop off a bunch of children at a museum and be like, right. don't break anything. Good luck. You know, you need some <laughs> adults around too to help you out. And what I loved is, you know, people saying, I've never heard this before. How could I have lived here this long and not known this stuff about my own region? Um, and just the idea that we have so much information and we're just sort of giving it to each other at these conferences that maybe, you know, 10 people come hear your paper and then you all fly home. And there's a whole public out there. This information actually belongs to them. Yeah, I, I, there are various ways to parse that. And, and, and if you work at a public university, then it does belong to them. Yeah. <laughs> the public is paying for you. It is theirs. So, uh, you know, again, this is something that we talked about a lot in academia for many years, how to get the information that these experts, professors mostly know out into the public. And it's a hard problem. It's not easily solved uh, that, 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 you know, uh, uh, any given monograph, like the ones that I wrote when I was, are, they're kind of forbidding. They're, there's no scaffolding involved. You just jump right in. And that's not a good way to bring people along. Um, that's why Wikipedia is so wonderful because it brings them along slowly and delicately and with general information. And then you can kind of go deep if you want to go deep. And that's the same function that the New Books Network serves is we really are a public education project and we will introduce you to ideas that you have not had that, that you should, if you are interested, you can go and get them in a convenient way. We meet you where you are. We don't say to you, read the book. <laughs> that's always frustrating to read the book because that's hard. So yes. And similar with it's, it's like museums or, 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 general interest magazines, they all do the same thing. They're kind of conveyor belts for between what experts know and what the public knows. And one thing the podcast that lets at least the host do is straddle both. I do love talking to scholars. I do love working with students, but you get the best of all the worlds because the information that you're taping during the podcast is just going to go out to all the people who want it. And it's not going to just stay within the university, whether it's a public university where the students are enrolled or a private one, it's going to go beyond the walls of whatever school. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things we're very mindful of is making a permanent repository for the podcast. So we devoted really significant resources to making sure that the episodes that our hosts produce are there permanently. This is a long-term goal that we have, that, that they will be available forever. So we have some people, if you go to the academic partners part of the New Books Network website, these are academics, usually academics, not exclusively that have podcasts, don't really reach the audiences that they should. And they're excellent. And they are in the academic space. So we host them for these academic partners and we push them into organic NBN channels so they get bigger audiences. Um, and part of this has to do with what I would call brand building. This is not something that I thought about when I was beginning, but the NBN brand itself tells you a lot about what you're going to get. You're going to get NBN stuff. <laughs> and it's a kind of stuff. It's not the best stuff. It may not be exactly for you, but it's NBN stuff. A little bit like when you go to Wikipedia, you're going to get a Wikipedia article. That's what you're going to get. And I think this uh, actually reduces the kind of cognitive load on people because, you know, one of the difficult things about podcasting is that there are 2 million of them. 
Like, how do you know what to listen to? Holy cow. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Um, but on the NBN, if you know what it is and you're interested in Sufis in Pakistan, you're going to get NBN stuff. And that, that is very clarifying, just as if, you know, if you want financial news or news with a financial kind of angle, you read the Wall Street Journal. Are you going to read every article in the Wall Street Journal? No. You're going to read the ones that are interested in you because it's going to be Wall Street Journal stuff. And so that that the creation of a kind of national or international brand has turned out to be very important for us because people know what they're getting. It strikes me that you got a crash course in capitalism and marketing. I did. I, I, I really did. And I should also say that there are many people along the way who helped me, uh, people in business who knew much more than I did because I had no idea. How, how to do any of this as a professor. And they were very generous with their time and they continue to be, to teach me about, you know, how to make, a, how to make the thing sustainable. This is one of my favorite words, sustainable, because many podcasts are not sustainable. Um, and the reason for that, we live in the world we live in and sustainable means revenue. The people that do the work have to be paid in some way. Uh, academics are asked to do free things all the time, and I was too. Um, we try not to do things that way because, you know, the listeners are getting something and it, we, we find ways to essentially make them or ask them to pay for it. And they do pay for it. Uh, th this was the biggest challenge, really, was making it sustainable because there were many moments at which I just didn't know whether I could continue doing it. Um, but happily, I got the help of all these very generous people who taught me, well, this is what you should do to make it sustainable in a kind of unobtrusive way. And, and we've, we've done the best we can there. What's one of the greatest misconceptions about podcasts? I'm sure people come to you and say, oh, I want to have a podcast. And there's probably some things you wish people knew. Yeah, the hardest thing to do in podcasting is build an audience. I read an article in Forbes a few months ago that said the, the article was titled like uh, how to get an audience in podcasting. And the answer was start in 2007. <laughs> it takes years to build an audience. It just doesn't happen immediately, especially with the kinds of things that we do, because th they are sort of obscure in the sense that they're not covered by the trad media. So it takes years and years of effort to build the trust among listeners and to build the brand among the audience to, to get an audience. Uh, and, and, you know, the new example has been around for 15 years now, essentially. And it, it, our audience has steadily gone up and continues to go up, but that's because we put in the 15 years to do it. So it's, it's, you should not expect that anyone will listen to your podcast because they probably won't um, unless you put in 15 years or something like that. What's another misconception? Well, I th one misconception is that you're the first person to do this. Um, I, I had the interesting experience of, I was talking to somebody who worked in uh, adhesives and he's saying, say, I think I'll start a podcast on adhesives. The adhesive industry is enormous and very important, right? We use them in daily life. I mean, it's really an important part of modern life, adhesives. And I said, I bet there are podcasts about that already. And so we looked it up and there are a bunch. <laughs> there are a bunch of podcasts about adhesives in the adhesive industry. That's great. 
right? Because the people in the adhesive industry need the information in those podcasts. So thinking that you're you're the first person to do it is probably not right. Now you may be the only person willing to devote 15 years to it. And then you will be the only person left doing adhesives. But you're probably not the first person to have a podcast on any given topic. One thing I found just since embarking on this channel a couple of years ago was people have come to me and said, they've asked me how many hours a week I put in and how many hours I put into prepping for an interview and, and what it really looks like. And, and I tell them and, and they're like, well, yeah, but I don't want to do that much work. I didn't think it was going to be this much work. And I think you can kind of tell in podcasting who's put in the research and the work to, to really produce an episode and who, who hasn't. And I'm, are you surprised that people think it's easy and you don't have to really do much prep? Uh, no, I'm not particularly surprised. I mean, there are, there are many different kinds of podcasts. Um, uh, interview podcasts are, I think, the most popular. Uh, and that is because the prep time is, it, while it does exist, is lower because the author is going to do most of the talking. And that, that's an economy for us. And I tell people when I interview them, and it's in the instructions when you become a new book, that you should really let the author talk. That they don't probably want to hear from you as a host. The host should kind of recede into the background for most of our podcasts. Um, they, they aren't exactly discussions. Um, they're not reviews. The things we do are not book reviews. They are opportunities for the author to talk about what they learned in their research, full stop. And so, yeah, that takes time. You have to familiarize yourself with the book and, you know, you have to master the sort of small technical hurdles that are involved. It's not easy to do and it's not easy to get into a rhythm of doing it. Um, but the best NBN hosts, which is all NBN hosts, um, uh, do that. Um, they're, they're interested in the material, so they devote the time necessary to do it. Uh, they, they've mastered the technology, and they have me on the back end to put everything together and get them an audience, which is very gratifying for them. I mean, when I host ask me, you know, how many people listen to my podcast, and I'm able to say, you know, 5,000 people listen to this podcast. And this is about a book about medieval waterworks, and they're astounded. And the authors are even more astounded that 5,000 people would download a podcast about medieval waterworks. And these episodes, because they're evergreen, continue to be downloaded. Um, we have episodes in the catalog that were published 10 years ago that have been downloaded over 50,000 times. Because it's just like a book in the library. It always gets checked out, maybe at a very low rate, but it gets checked out. Um, because it has something valuable to say. And as you said, some of the scholars who come on and talk about their book, there isn't going to be another place to go find an audio recording of them talking about their book, particularly oh, people yeah. who work in, while no one is the only expert in their field, there are fields where there are relatively few experts and there's even fewer who publish. Yeah, it's sort but, of a pipeline that gets smaller. That, that, that's exactly right. One of the things that I was mindful of when I started was, you know, when you enter a discipline like Russian history, you, you start with historiography and you read the people that were the kind of founders of the discipline. And one of them's name is Vasily Klyuchevsky. And only Russian historians would know who that is. But every Russian historian would know who Vasily Klyuchevsky was, a 19th century Russian historian and really the founder of the discipline of Russian history. And I always thought to myself, how cool would it be 
to hear Vasily Kuchevsky talk about his work, you know, 150 years ago, the guy died 150 years ago, but that, how cool would that be? And so I'm thinking 150 years from now, people will be able to hear people talk about their books. That, that's cool. Like that you just get to hear their voice and, and that's, that, that's a benefit that, you know, that's a good thing in itself. One of the things I like to ask scholars right before I hit the record button is, you know, what are you most passionate about this book? If I could ask you a couple of questions that really, you know, you would be excited to, to talk about, what are they? Even though I've already read the book and written out questions, I want to know what, what makes you shine? What do you want to talk about? And sometimes it's um, one person in particular I can think about, we both loved her back matter. She had written all of this information about how she had conducted her research. And she sort of jokingly said, well, I'd love to talk about how I did the book. And I was like, that was one of my favorite sections. So, you know, we got to delve into that. And I would doubt in other book interviews that she's done since that, you know, it was focused on how she went about designing her research model and how she had to keep modifying it in order to get the book done because there were all these unexpected reasons why her models, which looked great and should have worked, had to be modified. Yeah, I mean, we're all about getting into the weeds. Like the word obscure does not exist for us. Um, And so if somebody wants to get deep into the weeds about some minor point, we encourage them to do that because that's where they want to go. And that's what they think the listeners probably want to hear. And, and, and it probably is. Uh, So this is a very important facet of podcasting. Some NBN hosts will ask me, well, how long should my interviews be? And I always say the same thing as long as it takes. (laughs) Um, because we don't have these constraints that people like the BBC and the, the and NPR have. We've published interviews that are over three hours long. And interestingly, we've had complaints about the length of NBN podcasts, complaints that they are too short. <laughs> and, and that's always kind of gratifying because people, you know, they want, they want the, the author to go deep. And, and I encourage them to do that. Yeah. they I love that you said that because that's kind of how I feel about it. It's it's a chance for us all to geek out. It's a wonderful platform where we all unabashedly geek out. So what makes you geek out, Marshall? Makes me geek out. Um, it's an interesting question. I kind of have to think about it. I mean, most of my days, well, one of the things is just expanding the coverage of the network. I, I'm, I'm always so happy to hear from new hosts and from people who, I want to launch new channels because I really am interested in coverage. And, you know, we have 120 channels now. I can easily see us having 200 uh, because there are still disciplines out. Like I just talked to a woman the other day about a disability studies channel. I can't believe we don't have it. Like, why don't we have that? And the the reason uh, is not because I hadn't thought about it. I had, but we need hosts to launch the Disability Studies channel. If I can find that group of scholars that will interview their peers about those books, I will do everything to get a Disabilities channel up and running, and I will find an audience for it. That's a good thing. Like, you know, that's that's a really good thing. And that, that, that really, it's those moments that really make my day when I can do something like that. Like we just launched a Ukrainian Studies channel. You know, we didn't have it, but we had aggregate, we had done enough interviews that involved Ukraine that I was able to aggregate them, put them in a channel. I contacted people that I knew in Ukrainian studies because I'm a Russianist, they're closely allied. And I said, hey, why don't we do this so that people know more about Ukraine? And they said, great, <laughs> let's do that. 
And then a lot of the um, episodes will cross post on multiple channels. So different threads that resonate will make your episode pop up on say yeah. five different channels that, because it's, while we do go in the weeds and we do go deep, the truth is we're always sort of having a universal conversation because we're talking about the human condition. Yeah. I mean, but one of the things I learned early on, and I didn't realize this when I started the multi-channel format is that books are never about one thing, never. So, you know, it, a book is always about four or five things and will be uh, of interest to listeners in four or five, what they call verticals uh, in the business, in business speak. So typically on the NBN episodes are posted four or five times. There's their home channel, say new books and gender. But if it's about uh, women in Germany, then it gets posted on new books and German studies. And if it's about early modern women in, in Germany, then it gets posted on new books and early modern history and so on and so forth, because all of these audiences will be interested in this book. And, you know, one of the great things about the new books network, because I like to flatter myself to think is that people talk a lot about cross disciplinarity, but we really do it. Like you're going to, if you're on new books in history, you're going to hear from anthropologists and sociologists and political scientists. There's no question about it because their books are about those things. And, and so we introduce those people to uh, scholars in other fields that they ordinarily wouldn't uh, encounter. We've touched on this a little but What is your hope for the future of NBM? Um, well, I'll go back to this word sustainable. I want, I want to make sure before uh, I exit the scene that it is uh, a su absolutely sustainable enterprise, that, that it will have the, the resources that it needs to continue to do the public education work that it does. That, that's really foremost in my mind. Um, I want to continue to attract hosts and launch new channels until we get to the point where we feel like we've done a good job of covering the entire terrain. Uh, this is a big task and it may not be my task because as I said, I'm 60. Um, but those are really the things that are foremost in my mind is, is making sure that the project continues and making sure that we cover everything that we should cover. And what would be your top piece of advice for someone who wants to do a, a podcast as an academic, whether it was your channel or somewhere else? Contact me. <laughs> we'll have a Zoom call and I'll tell you uh, everything you need to know, because I've, I've done this for a long time now. And um, I, I always encourage, you know, if you want to start a podcast, you definitely should. There's some things you should know before you do it. Uh, uh, but but it's important to talk to somebody who's done it. And, and I, I talk to podcasters all the time, people who want to have podcasts um, or who want to become hosts on the NBN or even hosts on the NBN who've started their own podcasts. And there are several of those. Um, actually, there are a couple of really popular podcasts that have been started by NBN hosts because, you know, I introduced them to the medium and then they said, well, I, I'm going to put up my own shingle, if that's the right metaphor. And I'm great. And, you know, we help them and in whatever way we can, because we're all on team public education. <laughs> There's no competition here. All of our interests are completely aligned. So, yeah, I would tell them to, to contact me. And my final question I always ask my guests is, what do you hope this episode sparks? Um, I hope people contact me about becoming hosts because that, you know, kind of gets you in the game. And, and it's fun. I, I, I started interviewing uh, people about their books because I, I wanted to talk to people about books. Sometimes I joke that 
I went to graduate school because I wanted to talk to people about books. And then they asked me to write one. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> so yeah, if, if you, you know, if you have an interest in talking to your peers about books, uh, we can help you and you can do a good thing. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Marshall Poe, and talking to us about the New Books Network and its mission in public education. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.